Hello and welcome to the perfect puzzle. Today, or in this session, we're going to go through the book of Nahum completely in one session. It's going to be a little longer than some of the other sessions, and I apologize for that. But we're going to go through this at kind of a breakneck speed, so just bear with me. But first, we'll have a word of prayer. Lord, I ask you, Father, that you be in our lives with the presence of your Holy Spirit, Lord, as we learn your word. Help me teach, Father. Help us learn. Open new avenues and new approaches to our understanding of your word. And help us understand the full meaning of your word, Father. I ask you to, to guide our learning, our teaching, and to open our hearts, minds, soul, spirit, and body to the things you have to say to us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, the book of Nahum. That's in the Old Testament. That uh, Honestly, I don't think I've ever taught anything from the book of Nahum. Not only that, in all my years as a Christian, I don't believe I've ever heard anything about Nahum, and I'd venture to guess most of you haven't either. It's one of those books of the Bible that if we read it, we just read it and pass on by. We don't really sit down and think about it, probably because of the content of this book. It's not an upbeat prophecy. There's little in it to leave us encouraged because it speaks to us of the fierce wrath of God. That's something we don't like to listen to. We prefer Jesus. You know, all meek and, meek and mild, you know, the Lord is my shepherd. In Psalm 23, that's the God we think of. You know, and sometimes, you know, that makes me wonder sometimes if we really believe in God's wrath. Do we really believe that God's going to judge the world someday? That he's actually going to send sinners to the lake of fire? You know, I know we believe it like up in our heads. But I wonder, do we really believe it down in our hearts? And the reason I ask that is because we often lack any real urgency in our evangelism. As Christians, now, we like to emphasize God's love, mercy, grace, and forgiveness. Well, you know, and God is all those things. You know, the book of Micah revealed about him in uh, Micah 7, verses 18 and 19. Who is a God like unto thee that pardons iniquity and passes by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retains not his anger forever, because he delights in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities. And you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You know, we've not looked at the book of Micah, Micah in this podcast. You know, but Nahum is the opposite of Micah. You know, the other side of God. Now, he speaks to us in Nahum, not of God pardoning sin. But Nahum speaks of God punishing sin. Now, it brings me to a thought. It's interesting to me that when you run into people who deny the sufficiency of Christ's blood atonement, you're also going to find that those people deny any notion of eternal punishment. Now, Nahum exists. He sets us straight in our understanding of who God is and what God is like. And he does that by declaring God's judgment upon Nineveh. And Nineveh brings us back to the book of Jonah. 
You know, Jonah came preaching to Nineveh and it repented and was spared for over a hundred. But at Nahum's time, it's been a hundred years since Jonah's time. And this city is, you know, the capital of Assyria, gone back to its old ways. And it's a day of grace has passed. And Nahum declares it's a doom. And the, he opens a brief prophecy by pointing to the perception of God's character as the wicked see God's character. You know, the character of God is terrifying to those who are determined to pursue their own desires. Then without so much as even a nod to the fact that he is transitioning, this prophet of God abruptly speaks of the way God appears to those who look to him for refuge. Now, is that confusing for you? If it is, it's only if you have never met the living God. You know, the wicked seldom think of God if they do think of him. It's just a fleeting thought, kind of transient, just pops into their mind, and then it's put away. Now, simply thinking of God does not cause wicked people to reconsider their actions. However, their lack of perception and failure to consider the cost to themselves of doing what is evil does not change their perception when they meet God. Like so many of the minor prophets, we don't know very much about Nahum. His name means comfort, and his message was a message of comfort to a pe people who lived under the constant threat of Assyrian invasion. Uh, Nahum may have come from the north of Israel, from the Galilee area. In fact, the name Capernaum, which is the hometown of the Apostle Peter, literally means village of Nahum. But Nahum did not minister to Israel in the north. He addresses Judah. And it seems that he also wrote from Judah. Now we can't pinpoint exactly when he prophesied. But Nahum uses the sack of the city of Thebes in Egypt in 663 BC as an example of what was going to happen to Assyria. So we know that the book was written after that event. The destruction of Nineveh prophesied by Nahum happened in 612 B.C. So we can place the date of Nahum as being somewhere between 663 B.C. and 612 B.C. Now most scholars place its date around 615 B.C. Now we go into chapter 1. You know, verses 1 to 15, Nahum declares God's judgment by using every Hebrew word in existence to describe God's anger. Now, here's a sample of what he says in verses 2 and 3 and verse 6. God is jealous, and the Lord revenges. The Lord revenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. Who can stand before his indignation? And who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. Jealousy, revenge, anger, rage, indignation, fierceness. Let me ask you, are those really characteristics that we associate with our God? But, you know, but, you know those are aspects of God that we prefer to ignore. We want to shut out those thoughts of, of God, shut it completely out of our thinking. You know, we like to think about our version as 
what I refer to as a Sunday school Jesus. Now, we like to think of God as a God of forgiveness, mercy, grace, love, and compassion. You know, but if that's the only side of God we see, we're going to end up with a fuzzy image of God. And he's, that's going to be a false God, a God who is indifferent to the sins of men. But that's not the God of the Bible. So although Nahum's prophecy does not make for an entertaining read, he does us a marvelous ser- service by setting the balance of, under- of understanding of who God is and what God is like. You know, his prophecy is a counterweight to Jonah and Micah. You know, the apostle wrote, Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God. You know, that's the balance view. Because, yes, God is good in his mercy, love, and grace. But God, when he judges, is severe in his wrath and revenge. Now, let's think for a moment of this idea of God's jealousy. The wrath of God is rooted in the fact that he is a jealous God. And we use that word jealous rather carelessly, because we equate it with envy. And God is not envious. Envious, and being envious, desires that which is not mine. But jealousy protects that which is mine. And for generations, these Ninevites have been threatening, extorting, and slaughtering the Jewish people. By the time of Nahum's prophecy, they had carried away the people of the northern kingdom of Israel. Now that may be the reason we find Nahum living in Judah, though he's a native of Capernaum. He could well have been a refugee from the north. And for the best part of 200 years, Nineveh had been at the heart of Jewish oppression. The city was a wicked city, full of sinful people who practiced all kinds of sin. But Nineveh was great in splendor, and it reflected the influence of the Assyrian Empire. One wall was eight miles long, with 1,500 towers. But the Assyrians were also great in sin. They were a cruel people. They impaled live victims on poles, and just left them to roast to death in the desert sun. They beheaded people by the thousands, stacked their skulls up by the city gates. They actually skinned people alive. They didn't respect age or sex. And they had a policy of killing babies and young children of their enemies so they wouldn't have to take care of them. Let me ask you, does that matter to God? Let me ask you this. How would you feel if your little boy or girl came home from school one day crying because of bullies? Or how would you feel if your wife came home from town having been the victim of a mugging? I think you'd be a little more than a little angry, wouldn't you? Do you know where that comes from? That anger, it stems from jealousy. The perfectly righteous zeal we have to protect those who love us. And God is a jealous God. And sometimes that jealousy will give way to revenge and wrath. You know, and vengeance is another word we give a negative connotation to. And that's because all of our lives we've been told revenge is wrong. Revenge, though, is only wrong when it's carried out by those who have no authority to do so. Revenge is right when it's rooted in justice, and where there has been an honest assessment of right and wrong, with a measured response to the crime. And in human terms, revenge lies with government, according to Romans 13, verses 1 through 5. 
God has instituted government in part to avenge the wrongs that people do. Rulers are described as a terror. They're supposed to instill fear in wrongdoers. See, the government is a sword bearer. You know, one of the reasons we have so much lawlessness in our land today is because successive governments have relinquished their power as revengers of the people, for the people. They have made the villain the victim. Their government's far more interested in rehabilitating a criminal than redressing the wrong they do. They pamper and wrist slap instead of punishing and avenging. And do you know what happens after that goes on for a while? People start to feel wronged. They get aggrieved. Some want to take the law into their own hands. Because revenge in the right hands is right. And God is right to revenge. He has the right to pay back, to punish and destroy those who are intent on willfully disobeying him. He will avenge those he loves. I want you to look at that word there, wrath. W-R-A-T-H. Do you know what that word suggests in Hebrew? It suggests rapid breathing. Have you noticed how someone breathes when they get angry? And the word indignation describes someone foaming at the mouth. So is God really angry with man? Need to go read Psalm Chapter 2, verse 12, Psalm 7, verse 11, Psalm 76, verse 7. And I think it's fair to say God is angry at the sins of men. You may say, but, you know, Nahum says not that God is angry. He's slow to anger and great in power. And here's something we need to learn about God. God's wrath restrained is really God's wrath reserved. Nahum is not arguing for the grace of God here. He's making a point that God will not acquit the wicked, that sinners, although apparently getting away with sin today, all they're doing is simply storing up wrath for tomorrow. Fierceness, you know, indicates heat and fury or his burning. God is hot with anger. And according to Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 11, because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily. Therefore, the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. So don't be fooled by God's delay. Judgment will fall without mercy upon all who oppose him and his will. There will be a settling of the accounts someday. Now, the description of God's judgment is in Nahum chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. Now, let's go back to Nineveh. Now, one of the proofs of the Bible is fulfilled prophecy. And Nahum provides one of the most remarkable prophecies of all when he speaks against Nineveh. History verifies the accuracy of Nahum's predictions. Now, they weren't Nahum's predictions at all. He's the mouthpiece. He's the the penman, so to speak. These are God's words. And let's not lose sight of that. What did Nahum say would become of Nineveh? He said Nineveh would be destroyed by a flood. Now that's chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, and also chapter 1, verse 8. 
You know, if you've done much study of the book of Jonah, then you already know Nineveh was a combination of four cities. And around those cities ran a 100-foot high wall. It was wide enough to take three chariots side by side and is protected by watchtowers that were 200 feet tall. It was pretty much impregnable. So what happened to Nineveh? See, Nineveh was situated on the east bank of the Tigris River, and flowing through the heart of the city was a tributary of the mighty Tigris, the river Khosr, K-H-O-S-R. To protect against flooding, the people built flood defenses all along this river that ran through their city. And 50 years after Nahum's prophecy, the Babylonians arrived to besiege Nineveh, and they besieged it for three years. But in the third year, there was heavy rain. The Tigris began to swell. It eventually overflowed its banks. That wall of water met the wall of Nineveh, and it was man against nature, and guess who won? A two-and-a-half-mile-long section of Nineveh's wall gave way and collapsed. But not only that, but the level of the river Khosr also rose. The water broke the levees. Nineveh became a lake. Her defenses now breached. She was at the mercy of the Babylonians. And God said through Nahum that Nineveh would be destroyed by fire. I see chapter 2, first part of uh, verse 13. Chapter 3, the first part of verse 15. Now, excavations at Nineveh have revealed charred wood, charcoal, and a layer of ash that's two inches thick. Nineveh was destroyed with water and with fire, just as God said it would. God said, though, uh, said through Nahum that Nineveh would be plundered and destroyed and pillaged. Yeah, it's chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Now, according to the Babylonian Chronicles, great quantities of spoil from the city, beyond counting, they carried off. The city they turned into a mound and ruin heap. And God said as the city fell, its inhabitants were drunk. Chapter 1, verse 10. Chapter 3, verse 11. Now apparently the soldiers were provided with so much wine by their king that they got drunk and when the enemy attacked. And God said there would be a great slaughter. Now chapter 3, verse 3. And according to history, so great was the multitude of the slain that the flowing stream mingled with their blood changed its color for a considerable distance. God said Nineveh's idols would be destroyed. Chapter 1, verse 14. When the site of the temple of Ishtar at Nineveh was excavated by the British Museum, they found the image of the goddess Ishtar lying headless among the debris. And God said Nineveh's destruction would be final. Chapter 1, verse 9 and verse 14. Nineveh never recovered. Today, Nineveh's location, which is near Mosul, Iraq, is marked by two large mounds, which are only discovered and excavated first in the mid-1800s and in the early 20th century. All of that and more Nahum foretold. Now, you can't tell me God's word isn't sure and his prophecies are certain. Then we come to chapter 3. We have Nahum's defense of God's judgment. 
Chapter 3 opens with a curse. Woe to the bloody city. That's God's estimate of Nineveh. Not only that, but notice in uh, verse 5 of chapter 3, Behold, I am against thee, saith the Lord of hosts. Now Paul said, if God be for us, who can be against us? But equally say, equally so is, if God be against us, who can be for us? Did you know that God is against some people? There are those who he refers to as his enemies. James 4.4 4. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Deuteronomy 32.41 I will render vengeance to mine enemies and will reward them that hate me. Psalm 68.1 Let God arise. Let his enemies be scared, scattered. Let them also that hate him flee before him. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 24 Therefore saith the Lord, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel. I'm sorry. Therefore saith the Lord, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel. Ah, I will ease me of mine adversaries and avenge me of mine enemies. Now notice what else God said about them. In uh, Nahum chapter 1 verse 14. The Ninevites were a cruel and bloody people who expressed without restraint the awful condition of man's depravity and the sinfulness of the human heart. One of their kings, Shalmaneser II, boasted of one of his conquests, saying, A pyramid of heads I reared in front of his city. Their youths and their maidens I burnt up in flames. Another, Sennacherib, wrote of his enemies, I will cut their throats like lambs. I cut off their precious lives as one cut string. Like many waters of a storm, I made the contents of their gullets and entrails run down upon the whole earth. Their hands I cut off. And yet another, Shurbanapal, wrote of a captured leader. I pierced his chin with my keen hand dagger. Through his jaw I passed a rope, put a dog chain upon him, and made him occupy a kennel. You know, it's no wonder God called them a vile people and said that Nineveh was a bloody city. You know, and in truth, Nineveh got what she deserved, not only because of what she did, but also because of whom she did it against, because she did it against God's people. God was protecting his own, proving himself a jealous God. And you know what? God still protects his own, and he still punishes those who hurt them. Now that's a sobering message for persecuting nations. By decrying Nineveh and determining her doom, Nahum was ministering to the people of Judah, comforting their souls as they sat threatened under the shadow of Assyrian power. The prophets encouraging his people regarding Assyria, inviting them to go on serving God as normal without looking over their shoulder and wondering when the Assyrians might come. God's taking care of it. And someday yet, in the future, Israel will again be surrounded by enemies seeking her extinction. But in that day, Jesus Christ, and not Nahum, will be the one standing on the Mount of Olives declaring peace upon Jerusalem 
and avenging her once again. Yes, God is love. Yes, he is gracious, merciful, compassionate, kind. He's also holy, just, jealous, vengeful, angry, indignant, and fierce. He is both good and severe. His mercy knows no bounds, but his judgment knows no mercy. That's why the writer of Hebrews wrote, it is, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And that Hebrews also states, our God is a consuming fire. Those are chapters 10, verse 31, and chapter 12, verse 29. See, God's holiness is not to be messed with. And his righteousness is not to be treated as a trifle. And by far, the one thing that God is most jealous about is Jesus. There are many things a man may get away with in this life. He may even be forgiven for it. But rejecting Jesus is not one of them. God is deadly serious about Christ that he will avenge his blood above all else. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 29 says, Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who has trodden underfoot the Son of God and has counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and has done, desp- and has done despite unto the Spirit of grace. Is God too loving to send a man who rejects Christ to hell? Don't you believe it? He is too too holy, too righteous, and too fierce not to. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. Now, the book of Nahum is an oracle or a burden concerning Nineveh. But, and far from being a hymn of hate, it's a love letter for those who trust in God. Look at it from Nahum's point of view. Nineveh had a chance. They were warned. They would not listen. They didn't know how. Now, perhaps they'll listen now. But they're, they're not listening still. Perhaps they never will. And that reminds me of the words of a song from long ago. You know, young people who are listening, this is going to date myself. But in fact, you've probably heard this song. You know, the current generation of younger men and women today tend to lean towards things that are vintage. We buy you $1,000 phones with digital cameras. You spend your money on film cameras. MacBook, laptops, and you thrift for typewriters. Bluetooth digital music player. Vinyl LPs are making a comeback because of you guys. Now, I won't be surprised if you have this on your Spotify playlist. It's called Vincent. And in parenthesis, Starry Starry Night. It's a song by Don McLean the guy who wrote and performed American Pie. Now, he wrote it in 1971 as a tribute to Vincent Van Gogh in reference to Van Gogh's 1889 painting, The Starry Night. 
Listen to the words. Starry, starry night. Paint your pellet, palette blue and gray. Look out on a summer's day with eyes that know the darkness in my soul. Shadows on the hills. Sketch the trees and the daffodils. Catch the breeze and the winter chills and colors on the snowy linen land. Now I understand what you tried to say to me and how you suffered for your sanity and how you tried to set them free. But they would not listen. They did not know how. Perhaps they'll listen now. Starry, starry night. Flaming flowers that brightly blaze. Swirling clouds in violet haze. Reflecting Vincent's eyes of china blue. Colors changing hue. Morning fields of amber grain. Weathered faces lined in pain are soothed beneath the art, artist's loving hand. Now understand what you tried to say to me, how you suffered for your sanity, how you tried to set them free. They would not listen. They did not know how. Perhaps they'll listen now. For they could not love you, but still your love was true. And when no hope was left inside, on that starry, starry night, you took your life as lovers often do. But I could have told you, Vincent, the world was never meant for one as beautiful as you. Starry, starry night, portraits hung in empty halls, frameless heads on nameless walls. With eyes that watch the world and can't forget. Like the strangers that you've met. The ragged men in ragged clothes. The silver thorn of a bloody rose. Lie crushed and broken on the virgin snow. Now, I think I know what you tried to say to me. How you suffered for your sanity. How you tried to set them free. They would not listen. They're not listening still. Perhaps they never will. You know, we all listen to music. You know, what I just did is an is meant as an illustration to see how you can enjoy artistry from a spiritual worldview and make deliberate choices on the type of messaging the world is feeding you. God created art. It's how we communicate our emotions. But we must remember our artist. For me, this ancient Old Testament prophecy reminded me of a 40-year-old song, a song that I enjoy, and to look at human expressions and how it relates to our relationship with God. You know, we need to be aware, be on our guard, and stand firm in our refuge in our Father. We are a culture that is shaped by our environment, experiment, and eminence. There's a book titled For Whose Pleasure by a guy named Stephen Klingbell. He says we live in a time and a culture that has exerted enormous influences on the way we think about life in general, but also on our approach to worship. 
Worship is not aimed at pleasing ourselves. I want to leave that quote behind, and let me repeat that, though. Worship is not aimed at pleading, pleasing ourselves. Don't lose what is already good. Don't lose God. In each final verse of the three chapters of Nahum, you can see God's goodness is spoken to those who will listen, trust, and prepare. Chapter 1, verse 15. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace. Celebrate your feast, O Judah. Keep your appointed feast. Fulfill your vows. Even though we break our portion of the covenant, God is faithful to keep his. Chapter 2, verse 13. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers will no longer be heard. Chapter 3, verse 19. All who, hear, all who hear the news about you will clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? Now those are promises. I will cut off your prey from the earth. All who hear the news about you, speaking of Nineveh, will clap their hands over you. You see, God loves you, and he loves you enough that he sent his son to die for you. And if you want proof of the resurrection, there's an empty tomb in Jerusalem. Because if that can't be accounted for, This is the perfect puzzle. Thank you.